0: Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast, British Murders of course? I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. Welcome to British Murders, a true crime
1: podcast with a focus on British murder cases My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I am by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers, however I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together, we will learn about some of the lesser-known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. If, like me, you're a fan of horror movies, I mean, you're listening to a true crime podcast about murder cases and serial killers, so I'd hazard a guess that you are, then you've likely heard of John Kramer being referred to as the Jigsaw Killer. John Kramer was the protagonist in the Saw movie franchise, one of my favourite movie franchises by the way, and he gained that moniker after cutting out a Jigsaw piece from each of his test subjects. I use the phrase test subjects rather than victims, as Kramer always said that he never actually killed anyone, he always placed them in escapable situations. Anyway, I digress. The focus of today's story is of the real jigsaw killer, Stephen Marshall. This is the season 1 finale of British Murders, so I thought I'd finish with something a little bit different. Our story starts on March 22nd 2009 in the village of Cottard in Hertfordshire. East England. Local farmer Roger Kingley was tending to his farm when he spotted an out-of-place bag at the bottom of one of his fields. The green all looked like it had been placed there as opposed to being thrown haphazardly by a passerby. The bottom of the field was near a lay-by. This is a paved area at the side of a road where drivers can pull over and stop in case of an emergency. Roger unzipped the bag with caution and noticed an object that was wrapped in blue builder's plastic. He was unable to identify the contents, however he noted it was squidgy to the touch. After alerting the police, they met Roger at his farm shortly after his discovery and inspected the bag themselves. There was nothing else in the field apart from the bag. One officer shocked Roger after searching the bag when he stated, I think it's got toes on. The all contained a human left leg with the foot still attached. The leg had been removed with expert skill. There was no evidence of blood clots or cauterization, which all but ruled out the possibility of the leg being removed as a result of a medical procedure. Therefore, murder was suspected. Cauterisation, by the way, is the medical technique of burning a part of a body to remove or close off a part of it, such as to prevent the individual from bleeding out. A week later, on March 29, 2009, another discovery was made on a grass verge by a passerby on a quiet country road in Wheathamstead, another village in Hertfordshire around 25 miles from the location where the left leg was found. The discovery was that of another body part, a human left forearm, dismembered at the elbow and wrist. At this point, no DNA tests had taken place, so police were unsure as to whether the body parts belonged to the same person or if there were multiple victims. Missing person records were searched, however, given the fact that the age, gender and ethnicity of the victim or victims was not yet known, this was a rather flawed plan. Add to the confusion the fact that the police had no murder scene or obvious motive, you can understand why they had their work cut out on this one. DNA tests were soon conducted on the two body parts, however the victim could not be identified as their DNA information was not listed on the UK National Criminal Intelligence DNA database. The victim had therefore never previously been convicted of committing a crime. The frustrating thing for police was that, in most murder cases, the victim is killed by somebody they know, which means that once the police were able to identify the victim, they would have somewhere to start with trying to identify potential suspects. On March 31st 2009, two days after the discovery of the left forearm, a human head was found in a farmer's cattle pen in Asford Bay, a village in Leicestershire, East Midlands. This wasn't an ordinary human head however, its entire face had been removed, along with its ears, mouth, tongue, nose, and both eyes. Police had seen nothing like this before and weren't even able to tell whether the head belonged to a male or a female. That's how badly it had been disfigured. The head was sent to be investigated by the forensic anthropology team at the University of Dundee's Centre for Anatomy. Right away, the team confirmed that this was the head of a middle-aged man. At first, the forensic team suspected animals as having disfigured the head, as there was no evidence of decomposition. This means that the soft tissue hadn't disappeared as a result of it decomposing. As the head was found in the open, animals were also suspected as having moved it from the nearby woodland area. This theory was dismissed however, due to the lack of any bite marks. The next logical thought was that a human had removed all the soft tissue and head features. Typically in such a dismemberment, cut marks would be found due to a lack of experience by the person doing the cutting. However, in this case, it was noted that a very sharp implement had been used as the cuts made were that of a highly skilled individual. The soft tissue and features were expertly removed with the muscles attached to the bone. Strangely, all of the victim's teeth were left. This would appear to be a rookie mistake as teeth are often used to identify victims through their dental records. Having said that, in this case no dental records could be found at the time. As this discovery was made in a completely different county, around 100 miles away from the first two body parts, police weren't sure of any link between the discoveries. This changed a couple of days later when further DNA testing confirmed all three body parts belonged to the same unidentified victim. On April 7th, 2009, a fourth body part was found in a hold-all by a driver near the A10 Puckeridge bypass in Hertfordshire. This time, it was a human right leg. Four days later, on April 11th, 2009, a fifth body part was discovered in a ditch by a walker near Standon, Hertfordshire, around three miles south of Puckeridge. This time, it was a human torso, placed inside a green suitcase made by the same company who made the doll in which the right leg was found. The DNA from the right leg and torso matched the previous three body parts, meaning all five pieces belonged to the same victim. Can you see why the murderer was named the real jigsaw killer yet? The discovery of the torso was vital as it provided police with the cause of death, The victim had been stabbed twice in the back with a four-inch blade, puncturing a lung in the process. At this point, Operation Abnet was launched. The Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Major Crime Unit led the investigation, which involved around 100 officers. Police heavily relied on the media for exposure and appealed to the public in a bid to identify the victim. Police confirmed the victim was overweight, suffered from eczema, had bleached skin pigmentations on his legs, a fungal infection on his toenails, and was missing two front teeth. A picture of the suitcase in which the torso was found was also released to the public, though the fact the victim had been dismembered was not made public information. Meanwhile, forensic scientists in Cambridgeshire were looking at debris found in the packages at the five different sites. The plan was to work out if there was any common findings between the various packages as this would provide clarity on the last environment the victim had been in before they died. This was achieved by analysing the duct tape used to secure the blue builder's plastic the body parts were wrapped in. The forensic team were looking for something known as fibre collectives. These are basically a series of fibres that came from the same source. The first time a potential victim was identified was when the police received a phone call from a member of the public. A lady rang the police incident room to advise that her son had been reported as missing on March 16, 2009. His description matched that which the police had described in the media, which prompted her to call them. The police now had their first potential victim, 49-year-old Geoffrey Howe. Geoffrey had worked a variety of jobs throughout England, but was most recently a kitchen salesman. His brother described him as a jovial, charming character who had a heart of gold and would get on with anyone. Police visited the two-bedroom flat where Jeffrey lived in Southgate, North London. There was no sign of Jeffrey, however police discovered a couple who were renting his spare room, Stephen Marshall and his girlfriend Sarah Bush. Stephen Marshall was a 38-year-old personal trainer who previously owned his own gym. Stephen met 21-year-old Sarah when he hired her as a prostitute. She was a sex worker from Southgate. She'd had a difficult childhood, spending most of it in care, and became a mother at the age of 15. That baby sadly died after only 10 days. However, Sarah went on to have a second baby who was completely healthy. Geoffrey and Stephen were business partners once upon a time, they ran a kitchen-fitting company. Stephen and Sarah had fallen on hard times in November 2008, so Geoffrey had kindly offered to let them stay in his spare room. The couple had agreed to pay Geoffrey rent, however the payment soon stopped once they had fully moved in. This resulted in Geoffrey asking the couple to leave his flat, but they simply refused. The couple even forged Geoffrey's signature in order to fraudulently claim housing benefits. When the police asked the couple as to the whereabouts of Jeffrey, they simply said he had left, but that he was still alive as far as they knew. Police noted the couple seemed nervous and were being rather evasive. They weren't happy with what the couple were saying as to why Geoffrey wasn't home. A brief initial search of the property took place, police noted that Jeffrey's passport was visible on a coffee table, and they also found a personalised car licence plate in one of the wardrobes. It read H-8-W-E-J. Basically, it said J-Howe, Jeffrey's first initial and surname, but written back to front. Police cautiously left the flat, but felt like they had seen enough and returned shortly after with an arrest warrant for the couple. On April 21st, 2009, Stephen and Sarah were arrested and taken to Hatfield Police Station in Hertfordshire for further questioning. It was noted by the officers who arrested the couple that Stephen appeared extremely nervous and his legs were shaking. Sarah also seemed uncomfortable. It was at this point that it dawned on police that the identity of their victim was more than likely going to be Geoffrey Howe. It's important to note that in the UK, Police are only able to hold someone in custody for a maximum of 24 hours before they have to charge them with a crime. If they are unable to, the individual must be released from custody. Forensic experts therefore hurried to the flat in order to conduct their searches. The issue was that the police had arrested the couple on the basis that a murder had taken place, however they had no evidence yet that the murder had actually taken place. Try and get your head around that one. At first the forensic team found nothing at the flat. It didn't appear to be the murder scene. However, when the carpets were taken up and some of the furniture was removed, the blood of an individual was found in both the bedroom and the bathroom. It was therefore assumed that this was in fact the murder scene and a half-hearted cleanup operation had been attempted. Despite finding blood in the flat, forensic experts were unable to identify it as belonging to Geoffrey Howe, As he was adopted as a child, no DNA link could be established between Geoffrey and the family members who reported him missing. Back at Hatfield Police Station, Stephen replied to every single interview question by saying, no comment. The interviewing officer noted that he showed little to no remorse. However, he did appear to be very polite and a genuine person on the surface. Sarah took a different approach to being questioned. Rather than staying quiet she opted to talk incessantly whilst denying involvement in any of the crimes. Whilst in police custody, forensic scientists managed to match the skull image with the face of Jeffrey Howe by superimposing one on top of the other. Our skulls are unique and almost comparable to fingerprints, so by superimposing Jeffrey's face onto the skull, forensic scientists were able to confirm him as the victim. Furthermore, the skull's teeth were matched, eventually, with Geoffrey Howe's dental records. On April 23rd, 2009, Jeffrey Howe was publicly identified as the victim. Stephen and Sarah were then arrested the next day and formally charged with the murder of Geoffrey Howe. In the lead-up to the trial, further evidence was being gathered. The duct tape used to wrap the body parts in the blue builder's plastic was looked at by forensic experts. When duct tape is torn away from the ring, the sticky side is briefly exposed to the environment in which it has been used. Tiny fibers smaller than a human hair were found on the sticky side of the duct tape. The fiber collectives found appeared to have been sourced from a blue object with a similar texture to the skin of a peach. In Jeffrey's flat were a couple of inflatable beds, ones that you'd use to go camping or for when a guest stays the night if you don't have a spare bed. The couple had recently gotten rid of the actual bed and bought the two inflatable beds as replacements. Police believe this is due to the original bed being covered in Jeffrey's blood. The blue fibre collectives matched those of the inflatable beds. Other fibre collectives found on the duct tape were green polyester and green cotton fibres. These were found to match one of Stephen's green polo shirts. It was pretty much confirmed at this point that Stephen had killed Jeffrey, however, police and forensic experts were still baffled as to how the body had been dismembered so expertly. The forensic team in Dundee noted that most human dismemberments are either unsuccessful or haphazard at best. The knowledge of anatomy with most is minimal, and this leaves people with a false sense of how difficult a task it is to separate parts of the human body. Typically, you'd expect to see attempts of cutting through the bone. For example, sawing through the thigh and becoming perplexed when the bones get in the way. With Jeffrey, however, this wasn't the case. His body had been dismembered at the joints rather than through the bones. One forensic expert noted that she had never seen a dismemberment of this skill level in her 25 years of working similar cases. It was described as a perfect dismemberment in that a highly educated anatomist couldn't have recommended it be done any better than it was. Despite this, no links were established between Stephen's expert dismemberment and his past. He hadn't been a butcher or a surgeon, he hadn't studied anatomy, he wasn't even a hunter of game. Police and forensic experts had no idea how he'd acquired these skills. On May 1st 2009, Stephen and Sarah appeared in court they both pleaded not guilty. The trial eventually began on January 12, 2010 at St Albans Crown Court in Hertfordshire. Stephen immediately came out and changed his plea. He now pleaded guilty to the dismemberment, but not guilty of the murder. Given there were two defence teams present, one for Stephen and one for Sarah, the trial saw what is known as a cutthroat defence from both legal teams. A cutthroat defence is when the prosecution tries to convict two people of the same crime, but the defence of each co-suspect tries to strengthen their own respective cases by placing blame on the other co-suspect. A journalist present at the trial noted that Stephen seemed impassive and resolute. He appeared to be taking everything in and showed little emotion. The couple didn't exchange as much as a single glance throughout the trial, It came to light via witness testimony that Stephen was a manipulative individual with a violent past. He was even violent against witnesses that had testified against him during the trial. The prosecution provided evidence which showcased the couple using Geoffrey's bank account after he was killed. On March 9, 2009, estimated to be the day after Geoffrey was killed, Stephen sold Geoffrey's phone for £15 at Cash Converters, a British pawn shop. The following day, on March 10, 2009, Sarah used the internet at St Albans Library to buy a mobile phone using Jeffrey's bank account. They bought clothes and fast food online using Jeffrey's account and even used his debit card to pay for their regular supermarket food purchases. On March 12, 2009, an £850 cheque was deposited to Sarah's account with the funds originating from Jeffrey's account. One week later, Stephen was caught on CCTV depositing a hundred-pound cheque to his own account, which again originated from Jeffrey's account. On March 21, 2009, Stephen sold Jeffrey's car on eBay to an unsuspecting member of public. Both Stephen and Sarah's fingerprints were found on the car sale receipt. Remember, I said that Jeffrey's personalised license plate was found in the flat in one of the wardrobes. Well, before selling Jeffrey's car, Stephen swapped the plates with those from his own car. Stephen was later spotted on CCTV at a petrol station when he drove away without paying for the fuel. His own car was now sporting Jeffrey's personalized license plates. The trial went on for around three weeks, and just as the prosecution were about to call Stephen to the stand, something completely unprecedented happened. Knowing he had a wealth of evidence stacked against him, Stephen changed his plea to guilty. For a bit of context, It's very rare for a defendant to suddenly change their plea halfway through a trial. Upon hearing this new plea, the murder charge against Sarah was dropped. She did, however, admit to helping Stephen dispose of the body parts and to providing police with false information about the whereabouts of the missing person. Another huge twist in the tale then followed. Stephen revealed to the court that, during the mid-90s, He had helped dispose of the victims of gangland executions whilst working as a nightclub doorman. The reason he was such an expert at dismembering human bodies was because he had done it before. Four times. On February 1st, 2010, following these revelations, sentencing commenced. Sarah Bush was sentenced to serve three years and nine months in prison for perverting the cause of justice. She served all 45 months of her prison term. Stephen Marshall was handed a life sentence for the murder of Geoffrey Howe. Murder has carried a mandatory life sentence in England and Wales since capital punishment was suspended in 1965. He was given a minimum term to serve of 36 years before he's eligible for parole. Stephen has challenged the length of his sentence, however the appeal was rejected by two judges in November 2010. No links have been found to any outstanding cases with regards to the mid-90s gangland murders Stephen has alleged to have committed. Geoffrey Howe's hands were never found, though Stephen has informed police that they were buried in Epping Forest, which borders Essex and Greater London. That was the story of British murderer Stephen Marshall, and that sums up Season 1 of British Murders. I hope you enjoyed it. Coming next week, we have the season one special, which focuses on Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, known as the Moors Murderers. That will be a two-part episode. So part one will be next week. Part two will come the week after. For more on British murders, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, And you can also join me on Patreon. If you feel like contributing each month as a member, you get a few perks on there, such as access to my scripts, early episode releases, the behind the scenes footage on there. If you get the top package and you also get access to the raw and unedited audio. So if I make a mistake on my original audio, if I cough, if I do anything, if I make a mistake or get frustrated as as I sometimes do, you'll get access to that as well. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to leave me a review on iTunes because that really does help the show grow. And if you're interested in starting your own podcast, I know a lot of my fans out there are considering this, I host with Buzzsprout. If you want to join Buzzsprout and have them host your podcast, I do have a link in the show notes you can click on. If you do sign up to them for a paid plan after your second monthly payment, you will get a $20 Amazon gift card because you've been referred by a friend, a.k.a. me. But for now, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio.